0: Welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to GDPR and all things privacy. This week, we are going to talk about one of the most impactful documents the ICO has produced. Last week, actually a couple of weeks ago, the ICO put out a document called Update on Ad Tech and Real-Time Bidding. Uh, and if you don't know what ad tech is or what real-time bidding is, don't worry about it. We'll explain it all to you a bit later in the podcast. Um, But just by way of context, it's a business, uh, an industry which across the world uh, generates about 98 billion uh, in revenue. In the UK last year, about 15 billion in revenue. And in Germany last year, about uh, 8 billion in revenue. So it's a big, uh, these are big uh, industries. And what the ICO said is what uh, the people taking part in this industry are doing is not compliant with the GDPR. Um, and, and that it, the ICO would intervene uh, and recommend or order things to happen. Now, it's not do it straight away, it will allow some time, but that's clearly its intention. Um, now, this is going to have a big impact not only in the UK, but in the European Union and also in the rest of the world because inevitably this is likely to ripple through. Um, uh, all this in a week or in the period of time where. The ICO has just announced its intention to fine uh, British Airways 189 million and Merritt Hotels 99 million pounds. Uh, and so it looks like some pretty momentous times on the way in data protection. Normally we try to get these, uh, do these podcasts in about 30 minutes. Uh, but this, I think is such an important, uh, important intervention by the ICO, probably more, in, more significant in this industry than GDPR itself. Uh, that if we run on for 60 minutes, that's what we will do. And if actually, if it takes longer than 60 minutes, we'll probably just split it into two parts. But first, some introductions. GDPR Now is brought to you by This Is DPO. On your host this week, is me, Mark Sherwood-Edwards. Uh, to address the issues raised by the ICO, I've joined, I've been joined by three luminaries from the ad industry. I'm going to tell you who they are first. Uh, then ask them to introduce themselves and explain a bit about their backgrounds. The three luminaries are John Mitchison, who is Director of Policy and Compliance at the UK's Direct Marketing Association, Irma Oakes, Global Technology Editor, Campaign, and Andy Houston, Product Director, Crimtan. So, John, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do at the DMA? Okay.
1: Well, as you said, I'm uh, Director of Policy and Compliance Uh, The DMA is now the Data and Marketing Association. We went to a rebrand a few weeks ago, so... Sorry I missed that. that (laughs) That's okay. Um, You can't expect everybody to keep an eye on our website. But that that change was made basically to reflect the changes in industry, uh, in the marketing industry that have been happening over recent years, and obviously that falls into partly what we're talking about today. Um, The DMA, the Data and Marketing Association, is a membership organization. We have about a thousand members split equally between brands, suppliers, and agencies. Um, and when it comes to the subject of digital marketing, I think we're probably one of the most sort of agnostic, really. We, d- we don't have big uh, data organizations like Google or Facebook in membership. And the agencies that we have tend not to be um, sort of ad tech agencies. So we're in a position to be able to give a fairly um, honest and balanced um, view to our members on this subject.
0: Okay, good. Uh, Omar? Omar? Will you tell us a bit about yourself, your global technology editor, Campaign? For those who are not in the UK, Campaign is the leading advertising magazine in the UK and has been for a number of years, hasn't it?
2: That's right. Um, and we've gone through a number of changes um, ourselves for those um, for those listeners who don't know campaign. And we've been in the UK for over 50 years now. And traditionally, um, we've always been the ad agents, the ad industry's um, gossip rag, for want of a better term. But in the last few years, we've actually merged with sister brands at Haymarket, our publishers, those being Media Week and marketing magazines. Um, And what that means now, and through my lens as global technology editor, we're writing for a huge audience nowadays of not just ad agencies, but also media owners, media agencies, and also brand marketers directly as well. So it's it's a fascinating role in which I get to write about primarily what um, big tech is doing. And let's not forget that they make almost all of their revenue from advertising, um, but also how technology is impacting on all these business issues, and that comes down to business transformation, how we do creativity differently, and some of the issues we're talking here today, which is programmatic media buying, essentially.
3: Good.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Andy Houston from CrimTan.
3: Yeah, so uh, CrimTan's been in the digital advertising space for uh, around 12 years now. Personally, as product director, I've been at CrimTan for two years, but I have been in the digital and e-commerce space for around 20 years. CrimTan itself um, uh, works with uh, agencies as well as um, uh, direct with clients. And we look to deliver uh, lifecycle marketing through display. So we focus um, in display. Uh Mark mentioned uh the size of the digital marketing market of almost 15 billion. We reckon display probably makes up about 15% of that, alongside SEO, paid search, email marketing, affiliates on-site, content marketing, and all that sort of stuff. So, and obviously paid social. So, so our particular area of the market is, you know, uh 2.25 billion um in the UK, we reckon. And uh we are active participants of RTB, so we use it um to deliver performance for our clients.
0: Okay, in that case, you're the perfect person to explain what RTB is. What is, here's three terms to define, uh, ad tech, RTB, which is short for real-time
3: bidding and programmatic advertising. So if you're a layman, how would you explain that to you? So um, ad tech is a term that has been coined by shortening two things, um, advertising and technology. So uh, that is how ad tech is, uh, and that's what the definition is. It sits um, a li- alongside, actually, MarTech, which is marketing and technology. So, you know, everyone tends to like to shorten things to make them a bit simpler. And what we're seeing actually is ad tech is moving together with Martech to create Madtech. So, thought I would introduce another, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, acronym for everyone to try and understand. So, um, ad tech is around, you know, leveraging technology to deliver advertising ultimately. If we were to then delve into programmatic advertising, so you might have seen, um, for instance, you know, if, if, if any of you are based in London, um, the digitization of uh, you know, some ads in the tube. So there are multiple different formats of, of kind of this concept of programmatic advertising. So you might have digital out of home, which are the ads you might see on bus shelters, or you might see it in tubes. Uh, There is um, ads uh, on on websites, so you go to a particular website and, uh, you know, their business model is content-free and, you know, advertising funded, Um, and they will deliver, obviously, you know, sort of banner advertising uh, through there. It will be across multiple devices as well, so you'll have uh, programmatic advertising either on mobile or on desktop or on tablet, and on mobile, uh, you'll have it uh, not only on web-based browsers, but also um, through apps. So... There's lots of different ways in which you will engage with programmatic advertising. But, um, but does
0: programmatic advertising mean that it's the ad is programmed effectively to the user in some ways?
3: Um, not at all. So um, actually, there's lots of different types of programmatic advertising. The one that you refer to, Mark, is actually based uh, on the concept of a pseudonymous ID. And we'll go into a bit more detail about what a pseudonymous ID is, you know, sort of um, in the future. but um, And hopefully, like, cover that later. But I guess... Um, in terms of programmatic advertising, it's about using technology to deliver ads, you know, very, very quickly. So it could be that um, uh, it, it is based on an ID, uh, in which case, you know, that could uh, be allocated to a user. It could be that it could be based on geo. It could be time-based. Um, it could be uh, contextual-based. It could be location-based. There are lots of different ways in which you can deliver programmatic advertising. And actually, not all of it relates back to um, a user at all.
0: Okay, and in terms of the the particular issue that the ICA was focusing on, and they were clear that, that this wasn't the only issue they had, just, just when they're focusing on the time, at the time, they're talking about real-time bidding. And the way I understand this, if I go on my laptop or my mobile, open up a web page, an ad will pop up. Mm-hmm. And the, the space for the ad is is in a matter of nanoseconds, put out to the market, who wants this? Um, it pulls in some information f- about me, Mark. He likes fly fishing or, or whatever, mm-hmm. and that goes up. Someone bids for it. For, well, two computers talk very quickly. One wins the bid. They put the ad up, and that and that's the way it works. And that's that's happening. If that's an accurate description,
3: yeah. I mean, you know, well done. I think that's you know like a pretty good description actually. And um, you know, invariably. The time it takes to make that decision is around 30 milliseconds. So it's, it's, it's a very, very quick decision. I mean, ultimately RTB itself, I think is quite a broad term. So real time bidding encompasses, uh, processes, uh, you know, companies, but you know, sort of the actual framework. That RTB is is based on is run by the Interactive Advertising Bureau, and it's called the Open RTB framework. And ultimately, the Open RTB framework has been around now. Um, I think the initial one was built in about 2010, so it's been around for nearly nearly 10 years. And the original objective of and the original mission of that was to connect advertisers with publishers ultimately so uh, what do i mean by an advertiser someone who wants to sell a product and what do i mean by a publisher someone who um, actually has a piece of real estate that um you know sort of is visited by many many users um, and and they want to monetize uh, you know so that the people who come and have a look at maybe the content that they're you know sort of selling or whatever or, or writing, um, and they want to be able to connect that back to an advertiser. So, so that was the original mission of RTB, and that's driven by the Open RTB framework. And it's the Open RTB framework that facilitates uh, the ability for thousands of publishers. So, um, you know, fifty, 000, sixty thousand websites over here all trying to sell ad space and you know a load of advertisers here so maybe five ten thousand different advertisers at any one time in the uk maybe trying to you know sort of bid for that space and rtb facilitate the open rtb framework facilitates that in the period of 30 milliseconds
0: okay and one of the things it facilitates is just not only the, the trading but also commonality about ad sizes so i take it so if you yeah. if, if the, my screen has a space of two inches by three inches available for the ad then the ad that someone's going to be putting in has got of to meet that, that criteria. Absolutely.
3: And and so what you've just described there is, is what's known the business as a different format. So, you know, uh, there are different formats and there are different sizes. So you might have, you know, a banner ad that's, you know, 300 by 250 pixels, um, but you might as well on the same page have a video in-stream ad. So that's uh, a video format. Um, served in a slightly different way, you know, so potentially within, you know, so the page. So so there are lots of different formats uh, and lots of different sizes that are served um, through that and effectively all that happens as the page is loaded. So that's why it has to be obviously very, very quickly.
0: And for those who are not familiar, served means putting the ad uh, on the screen of the viewer, i.e. I- from a server. Okay, that's that's very helpful. Uh, Andy. Now, the approach we're taking, all of us, uh, on this podcast is a f- the, f- the first half of the podcast, we're going to talk about what the ICO said, um, and the second half part, we will talk mainly about what the impact of that is. Now, th- those two distinctions will get a bit blurry, but that's what we're starting out with. And the first thing the ICO said, it, it made some pretty trenchant comments about the uh, RTB, disproportionate, unfair, intrusive, that kind of stuff. But its criticisms can be broken down into kind of four, five, six criticisms. First of all is the one about cookies. And most of this stuff comes from a cookie, okay? So bec- the the I go to my laptop, I open up the web page, um, someone looks at my cookie and says, this guy's interested in these kind of things and finds an ad to match, mm. bluntly now the, the rules around cookies have been more or less constant since pecker came out so PECA is the uk implementation of the e privacy directive uh, and what it and what what pecker says is if it's an essential cookie you don't need permission you don't need consent but if it's not a essential cookie uh, you do need consent and it depends on the uses as well uh, and what the ico says uh, says is clear is says and it's Probably quite hard to argue with that if the if the cookie is being placed and used for marketing advertising, it's quite hard to argue that it's a uh, and it's an essential cookie. It Clearly isn't at that point. Mm-hmm. And they, the point the ICO is making is that the consents weren't being gathered by the advertisers. In effect, they were they were assuming they had some kind of legitimate interest, which you get under GDPR, um, and didn't have but they didn't most of them didn't seem to have got the right consent so that make looking around the room to- well,
1: um pecker takes its definition of consent from the most current version of the data protection act you know and we and that's just changed gdpr has come in we now have data protection act 2018 and the standard of consent has been significantly increased so so what people used to get away with under PECA, although the PECA legislation hasn't changed, the standard, the definition of consent within PECA has changed and raised the bar a bit. So consent is now more difficult to obtain and to demonstrate. So well, that's had some impact
0: as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. So the PECA now, well, their bit of legislation has just tweet PECA. So cons- consent is now required. the use of the word consent and and the PECA consent is now equivalent to GDPR. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think the reason why, uh, you know, the ICO might have made, you know, and come out with this statement and actually Dury recently, uh, in fact, they've just posted it on LinkedIn today. um, They've also come out with guidance around cookies as well. So I think there's, you know, sort of a piece of clarification around, uh, you know, sort of the original ad tech piece, but there's also a piece of clarification around, you know, the use of cookies that they have also just released. Um, I think the reason why, you know, sort of potentially this has happened is um because they were waiting for the privacy regulation to come in, which was meant to happen the at the same one, yeah. time, the new one, which was meant to happen at the same time as GDPR, um, but it's been caught up in the European Commission, uh, you know, sort of courts. So could happen next year, might happen the year after, who knows. And I think, you know, sort of actually... Uh, you know, there is a very clear, distinguishable line in the new EPR regulation around essential and non-essential cookies, and also the concept of explicit consent. So, I think you know, there's there's a requirement with that kind of somewhere on the horizon for them to, you know, so sort of definitely come out and actually just give this clarification, which I think is really useful for everyone.
0: Well, I think one of the things that I that is slightly blurry, and <clears throat> one of the criticisms that the ICO made was around. Uh, special categories of data, but leaving that to one side, is they said that once you start off with consent uh, at the cookie level, then consent is the most appropriate basis all the way through that you might use. So I thought it was kind of a bit of a non sequitur. You might have to have a consent for your cookie, uh, but you might, in subsequent uses of the data you've collected, have uh, a legitimate interest. But for some, and actually, to be fair, the ICO was a bit ambivalent. Sometimes it said, and it wasn't clear whether its concern was pure, primarily about real-time bidding or whether concern extended across the whole usage that may be made in ad tech. But they seemed to say that once you started off with consent at the cookie level, then you had to run with consent all the way through whatever you might do with the data, which I found slightly odd. I mean, anyone here think that was just me?
3: Well, I mean, you know, I think there are there are two parts to consent, if if I understand correctly, and this and this is coming from GDPR, right? So we went through a a long program to you know make sure that we were supporting GDPR, you know, consent and also uh, the rights of individuals under that, but. Ultimately, it's the legal entity that requires consent and then the purpose for which they're going to use the data. And those are two very, very distinct things, I think, within the GDPR when it comes to defining what you're asking consent for. So I think, you know, as long as you're upfront when you ask, you know, uh, a potential pseudonymous ID. Um, what uh, you know, sort of, uh, or introduce who you are, and also what what your purpose for capturing a pseudonymous ID might be. In the ad tech example, then actually, you know, sort of, yeah, y- you need to be upfront. And I think, again, back to your point around, you know, it's 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 the whole way through. I think this this could be why someone like Alphabet is is having a challenge with, you know, um, uh, you know, so GDPR and, and generally around, you know, so cookies is because. Alphabet can ask for consent uh you know sort of for a user in a single tick box. But actually, if you think about how the data is used with an alphabet, there's 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 probably about multiple, you know, sort of ways in which it is used. And I think that is very challenging for any technology business, right? And I also think, you know, sort of so so I think it's right to say for a pseudonymous id uh, you know that browser deserves to know how that data might be used and aggregated if it's for reporting if it's for relevant advertising if it's for you know um, something else uh, then, then 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 i think you know you should be asking for that level of consent upfront
2: I think um, the um, the Alphabet example is a good one about um, the dangers of not being upfront. I mean, um, we saw with the French regulators fine against um, Google, I think at the turn of the year, um, you know, it's very much this issue of, well, it's fine to um, try and gain consent for your usage of Google Maps. But by the way, we're also going to collect your data from Gmail and other Google products within the suite and bundle it all together. And I think it's really problematic and fundamental to what we're talking about here today in terms of the upfrontness about how do you actually gain consent in a way that's meaningful. Um, I know we're going to go on to talk about special category, um, but that requires an even more explicit, um, more stringent form of consent. And everyone knows, everyone talks about it where everyone just accepts the policy. No one goes through and reads the policy buttons. Nobody actually reads the thing when they click on it, accept or decline. And there's a big issue here. How do we actually communicate that in a way which is actually not going to drive everyone off?
1: There, there was some research done not so long ago where, um, I, I think it was Ofcom, but I can't be certain, they did some research into finding out whether people were happy with you know, online advertising and the fact that you know, data is exchanged for free services, right? Because that's how
3: the internet that's how the works. <laughs> that's, works. That's how the free content model works. That's how it works, right? yeah, yeah.
1: Um, <clears throat> so they went and asked a load of people and about 60% of the people said that they were perfectly happy and 30% uh, said that, that they weren't and then 10% did not know. And then they explained how that data was collected and the extent, the, the, how much data was collected and exactly what happened with it. And the, the graph flipped completely the other way. Suddenly 60% were not happy about it and 30% were. So I think the, the problem of explaining what happens in this to people in a way that, they, they can get to grips with it in any way at all is really difficult. I mean, you, because you just spoke about how RTB works. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, and that, that wasn't something you could fit like in a, no, you know, no, a single and,
3: statement. And look, you know, and and that is, and, you know, sort of, if, if, if you think about a single thing in RTB, you know, you will have, um, and I'm just going to quickly run through the, the players in general right so you'll you'll have a publisher who have a relationship with someone called a supply side partner and the supply side partner their, their their business is going out and building loads of relationships with publishers that they can offer to demand side partners and demand side partners business is to go out and build relationships with advertisers so that they can offer all the relationships that they have with supply side partners who have relationships with uh, the publishers so that that's the really simplistic sort of, you know, how, how does an advertiser build a relationship with a publisher? Then you overlay, you know, sort of the fact that you want to try and restrict, you know, ad fraud. So there'll be some nefarious sites out there that you want to block ads on because you want to protect, you know, the advertiser's interests. Uh, you probably want to have, you probably want some, some level of aggregated attribution so that you can tell actually which Digital channel is, you know, sort of like performing best. Um, you might have um, an element of data management or segmentation, you know, so that's trying to build rules around the type of bids that you want to make on specific bits of inventory from specific suppliers. Um, And then you might have a dynamic creative solution, which based on some browser characteristics might deliver a French version of the ad rather than a German version of the ad rather than a now, you know, so, so if you think about the complexity of the, the different players within, within ad tech, and then trying to explain obviously the different entities that might or might not be involved in, you know, an ad tech transaction and the purpose that they might be involved with, it does, it does suddenly get quite big.
0: I agree, but there's there's a couple let me just the couple just there's a couple of things going on there. One is if you're the publisher stroke controller and you've got multiple uses and forget AdTe, let's take Google, and this is where Google got fined 50 million euros in France at the beginning of the year, it's actually very hard to explain everything you're doing to someone and collect all the consents, right? I mean, just, if you're a multi-activity business like Google is, Alphabet is, that's just hard to do in a, I know the ICO and all the ag- regulators talk about multi-layered and so on, but it's just quite hard to do. And you have to be a really good explainer, maybe use lots of videos, and actually, once you do all that, and if I went on MSN before this, and they've, you can switch off all the third-party cookies one by one, and actually, it was quite a small window, and I couldn't work out how many there were. And when I was trying to count them up, you only see five at a time. I reckon there's a over 100 of them. So to, to, to do everything by agreement, by consent, seems to be it's not going to work. No one's got the patience. But it's a bit like every time you go into a shop or got on a bus or go to the taxi, you wouldn't want to read the contract for the bus mm-hmm. and the yeah. taxi and so on. So if you're the regulator, uh, and, and what are you going to do? And what it seems to me they will end up doing, and kind of a doing, but not totally explicitly, is in the consumer space, if you buy something, there might be a contract out there, but it's regulated by loads of legislation that protects consumers, okay? Because the assumption is consumers aren't going to get lawyers to read every time they get on a the bus, they don't to read the contract, and they haven't got time. And, you kind of, and this is kind of implicitly, not explicitly, but implicitly what... The ICO maybe is moving to. It's just moving to this is a simple playing field. These are the rules. If you want to do something different than that, you've got to be really upfront about it. Otherwise, I don't see how this is going to work. Everyone's going to die from consent fatigue before we get anywhere.
3: And I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, okay, I've been only in ad tech for, you know, two years, but. Uh, I've been in and around digital e-commerce and marketing. And back in 2003, 2004, they introduced the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard. I don't know whether any of you are familiar with this. PCI DSS. Yeah, another big thing, you know. So clearly, you know, it was it, it, it was eight years since Amazon sold their first book in 1996, which interestingly was the last Data Protection Act, I think, uh, before GDPR. What we saw with PCI DSS was more and more transactions happening um, uh, online and people placing orders and doing all these things and uh, and there needed to be a, a standard that um, made sure that effectively the way people stored this data and the way people transacted you know sort of payments was done in the right way right And so that, that that's what the PCI DSS looked to you know sort of like solve. Um, and ultimately when I when I go to a website and I place an order and I buy something, I might not necessarily know what the payment gateway is. I might not necessarily know what the fraud is. It could be 3D secure, it could be someone else, you know, it could be Adyen. It could be all the, could be paid, you know, whatever. But ultimately, everyone is adhering to the same standard. And if they don't adhere to that standard, then it's the players that are at fault rather than the actual motorway that is, uh, you know, sort of driving the transaction.
0: Okay, now, I think that's a very good parallel. So if I go to pay with a Visa card or something, my data goes through various players on the way. I've got no idea who they are. I know the I know the shop and I know my bank is what my bank is. And those that those are the two I know. The rest of them are, and I know maybe Visa's involved, but I'm not sure. Uh, and and the rest of them I've no idea and I'm not concerned with that about that. Okay. In the ad tech space it's slightly different, I think. So we have the transparency bit, the complexity at the what are people using with the data point, which is the kind of uh, Google fine point? How can you explain what I'm doing? You know, clarity of exposition, which is quite hard in itself. Then you have actually who's playing with my data? We know that in the in the Visa Card example, it's a limited amount of people who are regulated in this country by the FCA, right? So we're all comfortable there. But in the ad tech world, and and, and fair and the ICA makes this point, you just don't know. Right? Not, do do not know. There's at least a thousand of them. Some may be part of the IRB and, and then subscribe to those or others are not. So there's loads of players out there. And the other point is that the uh, the ICO made is, you know, your bid is going through they're augmenting it with bits of information they've collected about you from other pla- other places. And so it's 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 much more of a free-for-all mm-hmm. than happens in the uh, the ad tech world. And in one of the the French cases last year, the Vectori case, who had been involved in real-time bidding, uh, they had collected 67 million records, which had held on as part of this process. And the CNIL, the French regulator, went, delete your 67 million records. So I can see... But that 67
1: million records, that was was for a very short period of time. They actually had quite a good... um, They didn't retain... Too much data well so, there was a
0: bit of blurriness about what they did retain and
2: didn't retain they, but they, still. they, they have processed far more data than that right? yeah but they had what they were just holding on to that number yeah, yeah I'm sure they- yeah I mean even taking that number on face value I think they said um, on the website' we're saying 70% of our data is not stored so 68 million we're talking about 30 percent so does, that means potentially 2.5 250 million records were kept that's a huge number, and we're talking about a very small player in a huge ecosystem, um, which I think gives an indication about how you know how big of an issue we're, we're dealing with. Okay, and one, and
0: one of the and one of the so we've got loads of players. Uh, the original uh, data from and I've just I've opened my I've opened my laptop, looked at the website, Bing uh, that goes out. Plus, it's supplemented. Wild West is giving a slightly over dramatic thing, but that's the kind of a, kind of what it is. And everyone is a seemed, not everybody. Everybody's kind of everybody seems to be a controller. If one person was uh, the controller and everybody else was the processor, okay, the way the GDPR data protection is set up, the controller is in charge, and he that controlling entity is then in charge of all the processors down the way. So there's some discipline, okay. If everybody's a controller, then it's a it's a kind of everybody's responsible for themselves, okay. And at the moment, everybody's a controller, more or less, some exceptions. But the ICO's point is they're not acting as controllers should. Okay. And they make two two main points. One is under GDPR, it's kind of amped up the controller's duties. So not only you have to be accountable now, you have to demonstrate you're accountable, right? Mm-hmm. Preemptive show that you're doing the right thing. That's the duty. So that doesn't seem to be happening or doesn't seem to be clearly happening and clearly enough the ICO's perception and there's this whole issue around consent and contractual warranties that got mentioned earlier whereas at the moment one person gets a consent on behalf of you know 400 500 1000 unknowns further down the line and the ICO's point and you can look at the GDPR and argue, argue whether they're right or wrong but their point is how can that be a valid consent how can you have a I can't remember the terminology, is specific and ambiguous. Informed. Informed. Mm. There's one more freely given for 400 people you've never met. Okay, how does that work? And what what people were saying before, and this was picked up by the French, was, well, I have a contractual warranty. Mm. Well, yeah. Yeah. And is what the ICA is saying. You've got to go direct for it to be real. I'm not sure that's right, but that's kind of, you can see the logic behind it. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I think if, if we look at what the objective of RTV is, which is to connect advertisers with publishers, actually the current mechanism could be missing one of the key players in that in that in that in that relationship, in that I think there's a lot of onus on the publishers to go out and gather consent um for everyone. Uh when in fact actually, you know, sort of everyone should be working together.
2: Well, you um, know, that's exactly right. That. I mean, because it's the ecosystem which has created the situation of um, broadcasting, essentially, where you could be a perfectly responsible publisher, high quality content. You do your due diligence with your exchange, but it's the exchange which is the mechanism of the data going out there and the same user going on multiple sites and the exchange essentially collecting data from multiple entry points. Where essentially you're able, you, you have a system where, you know, as the ICO pointed out, extremely detailed profiles of users are being built up, and you know, imagine if you will. You know, uh, is it
3: is it users or browsers though? And this is this is always well. You know, well,
2: but this is okay. So this is a good point. But
0: you you talk about pseudonymous ID, pseudon- yeah. I can't pronounce that word. Yeah, you know yeah, the pseudonymous, yeah. Uh, but from the ICO's perspective, that's nothing pseudonymous about it. Not 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 in the pure sense of it.
3: It's pseudonymous in that you can't identify an individual from that particular ID, but it is uh, or can be related to a browser that a individual might use. Right, so. Um, it's not anonymous, obviously, because otherwise, you know, it would just be a piece of gobbledygook. But it's not. It's
0: not. But, it's not in the. It's not in the way that word is normally used. Normally, you have the the personal data in a semi closed environment, and you pseudonymize it so people don't see what they don't need to see. As soon as it, since the GDPR describes personal online online den- identifies as personal data, you know.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And and look, that's why this has brought RTB into scope is actually, you know, I think there's a perception maybe that everyone's adding a load of and a load of stuff on the way, you know, So sort of, I mean, the reality is, right, that um, actually open RTB framework, the framework, you know, that the IAB have, does have categorization, but that categorization that the IAB sends through within that whole supply chain is based on context. It's not based on, you know, user at all. So people can derive, oh, right, I'm looking at uh, a particular piece of content that has been contextualized in that way by the publisher. I can make some assumptions around what that person might, you know, like, but I don't actually know who that person is. It just so happens that I'm getting a... A bid request for a piece of inventory that is associated with a piece of content that a user is looking at, so I can potentially serve back what might be a more relevant ad. Someone who's really interested in football, let's try and sell them footballs, you know, kind of. Example. And do you think
0: it's at that level? You can't you can't infer back or you can't deduce
3: back to it's Joe Blogs who's interested in football. Well, so uh, so you can deduce the fact, and I'm just talking about the open RTB framework because I think back to the back to the players in the party, right? The actual open RTB framework only. has has one set of categorization that's not to say there there is not an object that someone could add more data segments to but actually you know I mean we process 50,000 queries per second in our you know bidder and we you know from a number of supply side partners and, and and we don't see any incremental data segments in there we see IAB categories but the IAB categories are based on um, actually what the website is doing nothing to actually do with the user now back to the pseudonymous ID. If someone has consented on the publisher for the purposes of relevant advertising or whatever that, you know, sort of, I agree, you know, sort of might be, or I accept, I do not accept, then actually what happens is a consent string mechanism is passed through the OpenRTB framework, which we facilitate and have the ability to unwrap and see whether or not we have consent and then choose whether or not to actually then maybe serve something that might be relevant not only to what they're looking at, but also... Uh, might be relevant to that particular browser. So it's 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 a two, like there there are two kind of separate taxonomies going on here. There's taxonomies that are associated to context, geo, time, you know, think, you know, marketing plans or whatever. There, 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 there's like a taxonomy that you can set up there that's completely unrelated and out of scope of personal data under GDPR. And then there is a taxonomy that is associated potentially to building uh, perceived or derived you know um, implications around a particular ID of things they might be interested in, and that might be behavioural based. If they go onto a website and they look at a particular, they 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 look at shoes. Let's derive that they might be interested in shoes type thing, or let, let's derive that that browser might be interested in shoes. Remember, we're not actually capturing anything that would be able to relate us back to uh, you know sort of a particular individual or a particular data subject it's just that this pseudonymous ID is an online identifier and therefore defined as personal data
0: and what about the okay so you you're, you're saying that you reckon that that these the opens these open frameworks if correctly applied could be not really dealing with uh, personal data in the in the stricter sense would be Synonymous data, that person's interested in football and shoes, not Joe Bloggs who's interested in football and shoes.
3: But Joe, like, Joe Bloggs, and I think let's be absolutely clear here, Joe, like, Joe Bloggs, that, that first name, last name has not passed through the Open RTB framework. And it, what about it, the it's not, it's not, what it's, about the,
0: the the Google the Google identifiers, the ad identifiers, and so on?
3: Uh, so you have if you opt in on a mobile, there's a there's a device identifier, yes, um, and it's and it's called a device advertising ID, right? So you have got one of those, yeah. So so yes, that that could be passed through RTB if if you've consented. Now that goes back to the whole consent question, right? But yeah, I mean you can use RTB um, without using a pseudonymous ID for relevant advertising. Uh, based on a lot of other different data signals that any normal marketer in any other channel would use to be able to try and get the best out of their budget. Okay. I uh, should, that brings us up. Do you well, agree with I, that?
1: Well, I agree to a certain extent, but I do, because I, so, somebody else mentioned this the other day. They said, well, it doesn't target a person, it targets a browser. And I'm like, well, how many people use your phone? You know, <laughs> you, you don't have to have a name to be able to identify a, an individual. Um, you know, if somebody gave you a description of somebody in your street and and their address, you'd know who it was. You wouldn't know their name.
0: I you know I think there, that's... okay. I, I think it, there was a time maybe ten years ago where that wouldn't have been treated as personal data, okay, because you couldn't track it back to Joe Blogs. Nowadays, it's the thing seems to have shifted, right, right, or wrongly, okay. So one to one identifiers are personal data. Where they like, now maybe that's a wrong policy choice. That's overly. Uh, maybe the one-to-one identifiers uh, shouldn't be personal data unless they are being linked to back to the actual human being behind them. But that ship seems to sail at least slightly in the last. Well, certainly since the GDPR, if not before, then okay. And maybe personal data has gone too far. The whole protection would be the analysis. Uh, it's not so much whether it's a pure identifier or pseudo identifier. It's what you do with it. it might be a better way. And it there, might be are, are, way
1: there are there are companies out there whose job it is to uh, to link online and offline data. So suddenly you do have the name and the email address and the telephone number of that person linked with all of the um, online profile. That I think that's Andy's point. Well. It's
0: just because some people do do that. Doesn't that? you
1: know They would say that that's perfectly legit. I won't name the company here because that would maybe be a bit unfair. But there are companies that would describe themselves as legitimate companies who are bringing that data together and, and then could, using if, that. For, but
0: if you weren't allowed to do that for sake of argument, yeah. then you'd maintain the disti- distinction that Andy makes between data about browsers and so on, which you can't fit back to people. like... You can see Effective. the I, I, yeah, you, I can, you can, I can see, see the argument stacks are. It doesn't I, fit in the GDPR, and the regulators will certainly not like it. But you can see the analysis, and the point where that came up more most explicitly in the ICO paper was special categories of data. All right, because they said so. The classic example is. I'll will give you a vegetarian example, We' other one. I'm not sure if that's special special category data is it. Could be if you're doing that, it for <laughs> medical reasons. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So let let us say you uh, are, are a vegetarian, right? And someone knows knows from your browser that you're vegetarian. They're not going to you're not going to get served up with ads for cheap cuts of beef, right? Fair enough. That's a decision about the user. For sake of argument, so anonymous or not. Equally. If you're a publisher or an advertiser um, you don't want your ad if you're the butcher you don't your ad for cheap cuts of beef ending up on a vegetarian website it's a pointless waste of your advertising right now what the ico said was some of these taxonomies got things like mental health uh, religion obesity i can't remember a few a few other examples sexuality sexuality and so on and they were not convinced. Trade union membership. Trade union membership. Political that. Thank you. And they said, well, we're not convinced, and actually that the players in the RTB market make a distinction between serving up the ad based on that uh, taxonomy, that analysis about the individual, or taxonomy about the website. We're not convinced mm-hmm. they actually distinguish that very clearly, even though they, they did. Uh, we don't care. We don't think that makes a difference. We think one is clear about the individual, one is inferred about the individual, kind of what they
1: said. I'm. I kind In, of. Inferred data is still personal data. Though.
0: Yeah, but I kind of want. I mean, is that right? That seems to me if you've got a rule that you don't put ads about meat on a vegetarian website. That rule really exists of whoever happens to visit the website.
3: Well, I think, in the like for the for the purpose of this podcast, you know, I, I don't think that is specific to RTB that statement. If if as you're suggesting, the you know, so there is a clear distinction between targeting an individual um, because they have, uh, you know, a particular religious or philosophical belief, which is one of the special categories that the IB uh, sorry the ICO put in their paper, and actually because, uh, someone's reading an article about Christianity, for instance, uh, and the contextual you know, thing in that page, you want to try and sell them a Bible for instance. Okay. So I think, you know, like, I think there is a difference between co- like contextual special categories potentially, and, you know, sort of actually trying to target in, in, like an individual. And currently the IAB categories are content contextual within open RTB framework. Now back to your point. I think then inferred interests. So that's when potentially it's what you know the player will do to say, well, okay, so I might have a pseudonymous ID, and they're looking at uh, you know a article on Christianity. So I might infer from that that they are Christian. So therefore, I'm going to target them in the future with Christian you know sort of stuff. I think that's 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 where the big you know sort of grey area is. I don't think the open RTB framework is. Particularly grey. I think it's you know there for everyone. You know um, anyone can go down and load you know download the twenty two objects and have a look at them from GitHub repository if they wanted to. You know that's completely transparent. I think it's how people choose to use the framework that I think is you know sort of um, what what ICO could be referring to.
0: Okay, and the other thing that the ICO was going. John, you about to say well, something?
1: You know the the ICO aren't making this up. This is the GDPR is there, we we don't have a choice over it. And GDPR says if you process special category data, and special category data, it, it, processing is anything from collecting it and holding it. You don't have to really do anything with it. So if you're putting... A record, you know, some kind of record against somebody's information, saying that they're likely to be this religion or part of this group or whatever. That is processing special category data, and you, you can't get away from the fact that you I need agreed. explicit agreed, consent really. for that. No, no, agreed.
0: Agreed. But the, the distinction would be if I have a rule in my ad tech business and don't put uh, ads for beef on vegetarian websites.
1: Yeah, I can, I can get that. But if if you want to get away from the fact that you, you know, you either have to get explicit consent for the use of special category data right Mm -hmm. which is difficult and nobody really wants to do that or just don't deal with that portion of data just well we're not quite sure that okay leaving aside the difference in consent
0: explicit unambiguous informed freely given and explicit version of that leaving that better side well i think that i think there's an interesting interesting distinction between a rule about which is not person-based about how you place ads and a rule which is person-based about how you place ads. Okay, but that's essentially it now. And there's a blurry line, on half a blurry world in the middle about, the, about inferred, okay? But there, there is two, two distinctions, one's in GDPR and one's probably not in GDPR, I and mean, in the middle probably is in GDPR, but let's part that one from the side. This discussion continues in the next episode of GDPR Now. If you have any issues that you would like addressed or questions answered, please send them to info at thisisdpo.co.uk. Equally, if you'd like to appear on the podcast, please let us know. Contact details and other relevant information are available in the show notes.